Hi everyone and welcome to Looking to Score, where we dive deep into movie scores, composers, and everything else in between. I'm Brianne Brennan and joining me as always is my co-host, National Man of Mystery, Brett Blake. How are you Good this evening. fine day? I am terrific. Excellent. Notice you've been uh, demoted to National Man of Mystery this week. Yeah, now what's what's up with that? I mean, I know international travel is difficult these days, well, but I it, mean, I'm still internationally renowned. Well, it, it is due to the COVID travel restrictions, you know, you've been My goodness. relegated to the United States and demoted to national. So I've been grounded. Unfortunately, yes. And also joining us is Chad Nouvelle, longtime Milwaukee musician who's been in many a band and Danny Elfman aficionado. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here and talking about Danny. Awesome. So now before we jump into things, I first want to share our pre-show picks where we highlight our recommendations of music that we're listening to at the moment. Chad, did you want to go first? Anything you're listening to right now that you want to share with the audience? Um, You know, ironically, there isn't a whole lot that I'm listening to right now because I'm busy uh, working on my own music. Um, so one of my bands, my current band, Conniption, is heading into the studio in, in just uh, about a week here. So uh, the three songs that we'll be recording are pretty much the majority of my listening uh, right now. And uh, beyond that, uh, I'm working on a solo album and have been focused quite a bit on that. And then lastly, um, in preparation for this particular podcast, uh, I actually threw myself in a deep dive back into my Danny Elfman collection. So that is pretty much all the music I've had time for lately. Awesome. And Brett, how about you? I've been listening to some stuff. Um, Obviously, I don't know exactly when listeners are going to hear this, but we're recording this around the Halloween season. So I've been listening to a lot of kind of dark, uh, autumnal, horror type scores the one that is sort of become my go-to in the last couple of years is john williams dracula which for my money is probably his most underrated score because it comes right in the middle of his most creative period you know of jaws all the way through let's say indiana jones and the temple of doom dracula is kind of right in the middle there and it has all of the classic williams hallmarks but for some reason, uh, it's just not really highly thought of. It's not talked about very much, but it's a fantastic, gothic, romantic score. That's that's just fantastic. And the other thing I've been listening to dovetailing off of that is I recently rewatched Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I was struck again just by how fantastic the score by Wojciech Kilar is. Um, so I've been listening Phenomenal to that score. quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Score. Yeah, I probably like that score more than the movie itself. No. Oh, yes. come on. No, the Absolutely. movie the movie's fantastic. I, I will not hear otherwise. Let's agree to disagree. I'm going to agree with Bree on that one. <laughs> I love that score. That is one of my, outside of Danny Elfman, that is one of my all-time favorite scores, hands down. I've never heard anything else by that particular composer, but it is one of those situations where I find the score is more memorable than the movie itself. And that is not saying anything about the movie. Just that the score is that good. Yeah, it, it's terrific, especially the use of choir, the, the the dark sort of choral work in that score is fantastic. Um, I believe Keylar did, I could be wrong about this, this, is just off the top of my head. I believe he did 
the score to Polanski's The Ninth Gate, which if if it's true that he did that, that score is very much in the Bram Stoker's Dracula vein. I mean, it could almost be sort of a sequel score to it. Interesting. Yeah, that's probably a movie I need to rewatch at some point. I haven't seen it in a while, and I wasn't that impressed with it. I mean, other than Gary Oldman's performance and the makeup and such, but... Well, the thing that not to turn this into a Bram Stoker's Dracula podcast, although I will do that if we have to. But the thing that really impressed me on this rewatch is the just the visual creativity that Coppola brings to that picture. And you can find on YouTube, there's a, like a 15 minute documentary about all of the uh, effects techniques that they used. And he basically hmm. his directive was, I only want to use effects techniques basically from like the 1930s and earlier. So everything in that was captured in camera. There there are maybe one or two optical effects, but everything else is being done for real. And it's it's pretty spectacular when you when you sort of look at what they achieved just visually in that movie. It's it's just a, a great film just to look at and sort of ab- absorb the imagery. And yes, you're right. Uh he did do the ninth gate. Okay. All right. So um Yeah, like you said, at the time of this recording, we are approaching Halloween. So uh, I'm going to recommend a Jerry Fielding score called The Nightcomers from 1971. Uh, The movie was a prequel to The Turn of the Screw. And there's a lot of nice spooky atmosphere to this one, as well as several pieces that are almost classical influenced. Yes. Um, But there's one cue in particular that I like. First heard in Like a Chicken on a Spit is the name of the track. And it's got this wonderful kind of spiraling string phrase in it that I I wish was used more throughout the score. But definitely check it out if you're interested in a lesser known classic movie score. All right, let's, uh, let's dive into it. So um, today we're talking about Danny Elfman and the art of main title music. Uh, Danny Elfman, I think is kind of the king of main titles, wouldn't you say? Well, he's definitely up there. Uh, you know, there are there are certainly other composers who who, you know, I mean, no conversation about movie scores, period, can can go by without, you know, John Williams. I mean, I kind of feel like that goes without saying. But to be honest, Elfman has to be, I mean, in many ways, you know, noted with certainly the top five Hollywood, um, you know, mainstream composers and and in terms of his themes particularly early on with his uh uh collaborations with Tim Burton some of his themes are i would argue some of the most memorable in the world in 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 particular when in in regard to that i i would say um still to this day the theme from the Tim Burton Batman film is probably a theme that most people who have seen the film or honestly if you've watched the animated series it was such a memorable theme. They used mm-hmm. it again for for the animated series as well. So um, yes, <laughs> a long roundabout way of saying Brie. I do agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me ask you this, um, Brett. You kind of had a thought about this. The main titles nowadays seem to be a, a little passe. I don't know. Is is it a dying art? Yeah. Because I think I think it is. Uh, I think it. I think it definitely is more. In my, this is not backed up by anything other than my personal sort of feeling about it. I don't have any evidence necessarily to this effect, but I think it's driven more by commercial and or studio interests than creative interests. 
you know, you, you'll still get main title sequences, but they've become, you know, fewer and f- more far between. And it seems that what the, the film industry is more gravitating to is this idea of what they refer to in the industry as mains on end, which is instead of putting your elaborate main title up front, you are now putting it at the start of the end credits. And I think the thinking from the studio might be that we just want to get the film rolling. We don't want to spend three, four, five minutes sort of setting the mood. Let's, you know, let's just put the title up on the screen and get into the movie. And then at the end, like you see in all of the Marvel films, they're pretty elaborate title sequences that you would think they'd be perfect going right at the front of the film. But now, no, you're seeing them actually at the end of the film. And um, I think you can still explore musically in a, in a film score. You can still explore the thematic material if you're the composer at the end. But it doesn't have the same effect that it does when you're establishing this stuff up front. Well, you know, I think, um, I mean, I agree with Brett wholeheartedly. And I, I almost wonder, and again, this is a, not anything other than opinion, like Brett was saying. Um, I feel like the the types of stories or the types of movies that are, are, are being made, you know, the types of um, outside of, you know, these big blockbuster uh, Marvel films and DC films, you just don't have the like epic stories in many ways that, you know, in the 70s, 80s and even into the 90s, you know, with um, with the Lord of the Rings films and whatnot, you just don't have these big epic movies. And I, I feel like Brett's absolutely right, because it's just like, let's just cut to the chase. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're not interested in setting up the tone or the mood with a score. And and, uh, you know, in, in the in the pop music industry, they have a, a phrase that goes, don't bore us, get to the chorus. <laughs> and I I think that's I think that's a kind of a good analogy for for where movies are are today they just want to get you into the story and get you interested because i think i mean and i don't want to like delve off too far into the like social ramifications of that but but you know people's attention spans have gotten shorter yeah and so if you don't if you don't suck them in right away you can lose them now that said you know personally i love a good, you know, musical setup. And I, I know we're going to get into this, you know, with, with these particular main titles that we're going to talk about with Danny Elfman, but, you know, anytime you, you hear a, an amazing main title, you know, on opening credits leading into the film before you even really know what's going on. I love how many of them set up again, a tone and a mood for what, you know, what you can expect. And, you know, quite frankly, like you were saying it, when it comes to end credits, okay. Yeah. These are now the end credits, they may include all the the various themes that were utilized throughout the film, but you know, now that's the callback. Whereas it used to be, you know, uh, you know, like an overture, the themes would be presented up front. And as you watch the film, you would hear those themes be developed and it would be a throwback to that main title sequence. So I personally am not on board with where it's headed, but I get why, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I think, uh, going off that, I think a good main title can be like your rocket fuel for the movie. It's propelling you into this world of the film and uh, potentially introducing you to a theme that you may hear later on. Absolutely. So it's like, what can that good main title give your film? Absolutely. I, 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 though I just sometimes think they're just not willing to find out kind of thing. You yeah. know, times, <laughs> times are changing, as they say. Well, and also, too, you know the 
the style of film composing that bred a lot of these great main titles has is sort of dying away. I mean, yes, you still have, you know, John Williams is still doing it, although, you know, not too often. You know, your Jerry Goldsmiths are no longer around, your James Horners aren't around. There's not a lot of an, of opportunity for big thematic writing that you would like to see presented in a main title to begin with. Right. And even Danny himself, I I would argue, you know, I don't want to ruin it for Danny, but <laughs> you know, a lot of his his later scores, he he um, you know, just to give you an idea, I have like 60 of his scores on CD and and you can hear over time how he himself has gotten more into writing less thematic and more incidental music. Mm-hmm. Uh and he, I believe in interviews, he himself has said, you know, sometimes he just wants to get out of the way and mm-hmm. and let the film do the talking and let the music simply enhance that as opposed to, um, I mean, I would argue that Star Wars, for instance, would never be the film that it is without that overbearing score. I, it would never have been the success that it was. And, you know, we all wouldn't have the love for it in our hearts if that particular score wasn't there. So I don't think that, you know, that it gets, for instance, particularly with Star Wars, it doesn't get in the way. It it, it does enhance. But I, I believe I've heard Danny himself say, you know, I'm just trying to get out of the way. I'm trying to, you know, give the movie music that speaks to the scene or or um, works particularly with the scene. But but as he's gotten more into that, I've found, you know, I, I'm someone who obviously likes to listen to scores without the movie. I, I'll just put a score on because I'm in the mood to listen to a really uh, well-crafted French horn line with a, you know, with a fabulous melody and development into, into all these variations and, and these themes from various characters. I mean, those types of scores in many ways couldn't tell you a story without the movie. And that, you know, that's what, that's what I kind of miss. Well, let's kind of get into how Danny Elfman uses the main title to set a mood and introduce the score. Brad, did you want to speak to this a little bit? I think for the most part, you know, obviously, if you went and listened to every Danny Elfman main title, there might be some exceptions here. But for the most part, he directly presents the primary thematic material or at least some of it that he's going to explore throughout the score proper. I really can't think of one off the top of my head that is not utilizing what will become his thematic material. Now, there are some main titles, there are some scores that maybe are not um, particularly thematic. Like off the top of my head, I, I, I can't hum the theme to Goodwill Hunting. I can't hum the theme to a civil action. Like, I don't know that those are really theme-driven scores. They're sort of more texture-driven scores. So those main titles are along those lines. But if it's a score that has, you know, lush themes in it, you're going to hear those in some fashion in his main titles. Absolutely. When main titles are the like, or when um, when theme when thematic writing is his mo, like there are a few people who can set forth a, those themes in a main title, in a way that that really kind of summarizes what's coming after it, and that's the great thing about really even about main titles, like in particular Danny's main titles, is you're you're getting you're, you're sort of getting the whole movie in a nutshell. And and I don't think that's an easy thing to do. I don't think it's easy to take two hours of film music and condense it to two and a half minutes or less. So, I mean, kudos to, to Danny and quite frankly, anyone else who uh, does it so successfully. Do you want to talk about how instrumentation choice affects the tone of the themes? 
I had, uh, you know, a couple of, of just after, you know, reviewing, you know, some of the pieces, like Danny Elfman is the man who made me fall in love with the French horn. Because if you really listen to like a lot of his scores, and particularly like the opening phrases of scores like um, Batman and Dick Tracy and some of those, uh, you know, bombastic sort of superhero, he'll use, you know, the French horn as a lead, which it's not typically a lead instrument. And I know there are other composers to do it. He's not simply, you know, he's not by any stretch the only one, but but it was his scores and his use of French horn as a lead instrument that really made me like realize like what a un, like kind of in many ways an underutilized and underappreciated instrument that is. So when we anyhow, when we get to some of the the pieces in particular, I was planning to point out, you know, where that uh, where that happens and, and why I you know, why I love it so much. And then beyond that, just real quick, is the is his use of of um, choir is just mm-hmm. is it's very unique to Danny to Danny's style, the way he uses choir, and particularly with you know some of the some of Tim's films. It just it can be so freaky <laughs> the way he puts it in there, and and um, I don't know, I just love it. I just love what he does with it, and I think like a like an artist, he has like you know, like every composer has their colors, right? Like that they put on their palette. And I think that French horn and that choir and a few others are some of his, you know, most important colors that he uses time and time again. Yeah. Kind of going off that, uh, the use of the French horn. I, and I think it also kind of correlates with his use of brass in general, is that a lot of times when you hear the French horn or brass as an, as an introductory instrument, um, mm-hmm. it, it's usually for a sadder, score and it it gives a bit of sadness or melancholy to whatever score that he's introducing with those instruments yeah and 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 again french horn in particular it has that such that that kind of warm rounded sound it doesn't have a harsh attack Mm -hmm. so i i think that lends itself to to what you're saying the sad sad sort of uh score uh you know or it's 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 a it's a certain form of subtlety by using an instrument that has such a, a, again, a round or warm tone to it. I don't know how else to, to really yeah. describe it, but I think that's, I think that's, I think that's why he uses it time and again is because of that particular tone color. Yeah. So um, let's also touch on the, his collaboration with Tim Burton for just a minute. And I know Burton was kind of a big fan of Oingo Boingo and was really struck by their work, um, which in short, was pretty much how Elfman got the job on Pee-wee's Big Adventure for uh, scoring that movie. And um, Burton actually said from a one-on-one interview with Elfman from interviewmagazine.com, I always thought you were very filmic in some way. I don't even know what that means. There was a strong narrative thrust to what you were doing, and it was theatrical. So I, I think the, this relationship is kind of one of those near-perfect marriages between composer and director, for the most part. They may sure. be the uh, they may be the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the 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 prime example of that type of relationship. They are the epitome or the paragon, I think, in many ways of of that type of a relationship. They 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 are it. Yeah, because they're very similar in I guess aesthetic. Yeah, just tone. Like with- really, I mean, it, it, you can say it. I mean, films have tone, music has tone, and Danny's tone fits Tim's tone it's a lock, you know, there's only, I mean, I don't even know what the number is, but it's, I'm pretty sure it's still less than five films that Tim's ever done without Danny. Yeah, I think so. Cause they, they did go through a rough patch, like around the time Ed Wood was released. 
Right. And, and who doesn't? Yeah. Really. So, but yeah, uh, let's dive into some specific examples. So, going off that Tim Burton uh, collaboration, let's talk about the Beetlejuice main titles. This is pretty much the classic hurdy gurdy style that we hear uh, from the Elfman Burton relationship. I think in its purest form, it's it's got this mischievous and diabolical tone to it, um, mostly due to the heavy punctuation of the low brass and piano. And it's also uh, got a couple of other Elfman trademarks in these these long string runs that he likes to create, and then that ethereal chorus in the background that kind of provides a lot of ghostly breaths throughout the piece. Yeah, absolutely. So that's only his second score with with Tim. Obviously, the first one being, as you mentioned, Pee Wee. Mm -hmm. And I think though Pee Wee was first, um, this is sort of where you first hear that um, kind of definitive Tim Danny collaborative sound, like that you were describing with the with the the, the punctuation and 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 uh, you know to go music nerd for a second, that one one five one five one mm -hmm. five uh, bouncing bass line that gives it its playfulness, and yet it's minor, so it's dark. You know, it's that sort of dark playfulness that that is it's certainly hinted at in peewee's big adventure but i think you can hear it now kind of maturing into um like what it's going to become and and like with beetlejuice he kind of nailed it down like peewee it was like just starting to show its head but with beetlejuice he nails it down and and you mentioned that vocal that vocal choir which you know danny has frequently used in tim's films after that it's just starting to show its head here. And it's it's a definite, like in hindsight now listening to it, it's a definite showing of things to come. And I mean, since we're talking about main titles and everything too, I think it's kind of fun. You know, not only does he throw his own themes, you know, the themes that are to come, you know, like Lydia's theme and Beetlejuice's theme into the main titles, but he's got that like five or six second reference to to uh, Harry uh, Belafonte's Banana Boat yeah. song. <laughs> In, in the main titles, which is super fun and playful, but it but it it serves the absolute purpose of what a main title does is to introduce what's coming and having that in there. I always thought that was a little bit weird, but it was funny when I was really thinking for this podcast, I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> so that's probably my favorite moment of the entire queue when he when he quotes you know, Deo at the beginning there, God, that, that always actually kind of creeped me out when I was a kid, because especially <laughs> there's there's two versions of it. There's one where um, it's actually vocalized by a member of the, the chorus. But then there's a the version that showed up on the album. I think it's just uh, played on keyboard or something. But the, the version that's in the film where you actually it sounds like a ghost is actually saying the words. Right. Um, that always kind of creeped me out, but it creeped me out in sort of a fun way which I think is sort of perfect for sort of launching you into Beetlejuice. Yeah, absolutely. Here is the Beetlejuice theme.
right, next one is the main title to Planet of the Apes, which is pretty Great. freaking cool. <laughs> An example of a, a good score to a bad movie, pretty much. Oh, yes. Yeah, I don't even remember it. I'm, I, I mean, I know <laughs> I good. saw it in the theater. I, I know I saw it in the theater, but I don't remember the film. I do remember that that Tim's longtime girlfriend was was in it, but that's about all I really remember. <laughs> um, other than, of course, the score, which even though I don't remember the film, the, the the score is one of my favorites because it's it's like so many of Danny's film scores. It's really unique, and it doesn't. I mean, I know that the uh, the franchise of of Planet of the Apes isn't a Tim Burton exclusive film, anyhow. So it's, it shouldn't be surprising that this really isn't a typical Tim Danny type collaboration soundtrack, but it isn't. And that's one of the things I love about it is it's it's uh, Danny experimenting again and 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 utilizing some of his studio electronic percussion. And I think that's a really cool like. Danny's use of electronic percussion, I mean, of course, goes back to his days, you know, with Oingo Boingo. Basically, I guess now would be a good time to bring up the fact that all of his scores start out as they start out as electronic because he doesn't sit like a typical composer and write things out on sheet music. He sits down in his studio and he creates these MIDI or digital recordings. Mm-hmm. And then um, I don't know if you know this, but a fun little side note with bringing back Oingo Boingo is that um, for quite a few years and, and I, and I'm pretty sure still in, in many of his collaborations, when he finishes writing the score, he then hands it over to Steve Bartek, who is uh, the lead guitarist of Oingo Boingo. And Steve Bartek is the one to actually write it out for orchestra. Hmm. So he, if you look at most of his scores, if you have any of the, of the CDs or, or albums, or, or just, even if you just look online, you'll see orchestrated by Steve Bartek. And it just so happens that Steve Bartek has done tons of orchestration with, of other scores, not necessarily Danny Elfman scores as well, uh, because he's an amazing musician in his own right. But a, a vast majority of Danny's scores are are then orchestrated by the, the his longtime collaborator in Oingo Boingo. Yeah, I've always known they were. Interesting. Uh, they were collaborating with most of the films he worked on so i didn't i wasn't aware it was in that way yeah they tried to get steve to to orchestrate a film on his or not orchestrate but rather score a film and i think it only happened once and it wasn't really his thing (laughs) um but early on a lot of people were like giving danny flack saying well danny's not the the mastermind here it's steve and um you know that was early on before he was maybe proven but now I mean, it's quite clear that, you know, Danny's the the genius and and uh, Steve is is a phenomenal guitar player. And he always has done great things with Danny's scores. But I think Steve will tell you himself, I, I I'll orchestrate, but I am not a I am not a score writer. So, yeah, circling back to um, Planet of the Apes, Brett, you had some notes on this one, I know. Yeah, I think it's an interesting case where. You know, I, I I tried to look at as we're talking about these main titles, sort of like what what are they trying to tell us about the film that we're about to see, and and I think in this case, the the use of the repetitive percussion and the electronic stuff really kind of builds to this dark aggressive rhythm that to me always felt very appropriate for a story about a conflict between man and beast and the overlap in between. 
And I think this, it's certainly a case where the main titles here are setting us up for a much better movie than we actually get. So I'm, I'm reading some extra things into this that the movie doesn't deliver upon. Like it doesn't have any really great thematic stuff to say about what I just described, but I think um, the main titles sort of hint at a better version of the movie that might've existed. <laughs> and I also like that, you know, it, it's kind of, it's, it's borderline experimental, which to me, and I'm pretty sure Elfman even acknowledged this around the time of the movie, that it's kind of a tip of the cap to Jerry Goldsmith's score for the original Planet of the Apes, not in specific technique or, or thematic construction, but just in the sense that that score was very experimental for its time as well. And uh, I always thought that it was interesting that that Elfman went a little more experimental than we had been, you know, accustomed to hearing from him at that time. Yeah, it, I mean, it, 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 that doesn't surprise me at all that that he would have said something like that because Danny is always very reverent and and like very big on kind of you know giving the nod or or you know tilting the cap to his uh, predecessors. You know, he's a big 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 fan of of you know Bernard Herrmann. You know, he he knows where he came from. You know, a lot of people think that Danny's this like rock and roll guy who, you know, somehow got lucky because Tim picked him to do scores. But Danny really is a fan of his predecessors as well. And so I absolutely believe 100 percent that yet again, he was, you know, uh, by doing that experimental score, he was absolutely like that. He absolutely referenced, you know, the the original score in in his own head or listened to it or, or thought about it prior to, to putting this one together. He's, he just seemed, that seems something he does frequently, I guess is what I'm trying to say. All right. Here is the main title to planet of the apes. Next one is one of my personal favorites. Uh, the main title or intros uh, to Edward Scissorhands. I think this is probably, in my opinion, one of Elfman's most layered themes. Um, you have the ethereal chorus and this really lovely harp string element preparing you for an unlikely fairy tale. It's gentle, it's somber, and it's sweeping all at the same time. Absolutely. I, I I think Danny himself has said in many occasions that this is still one of his favorite scores that he's ever that he's ever put together, and I think his I think it's still his favorite collaboration with Tim. And there's no question that he I think he approached this 
like a fairy tale because yeah you absolutely hear it in the score with the instrumentation and one of the things about this score that i think makes it so phenomenal and particularly i mean you hear it like you say in the main titles from the very start is how how delicate it is Mm -hmm. i mean it's just so so just so so light and gentle i think was one of the words you used brie it's it's really amazing and i guess i would argue I mean, despite Batman being perhaps the most recognizable, I would I would argue that this is this score still stands as possibly the pinnacle of Tim and Danny's collaboration uh, together. And, uh, you know, I mean, here again, we were talking about instrumentation that you first kind of heard that choir in Beetlejuice. Right. It was just starting to kind of like get used here or there. But in this score, it is fully realized he is he he's using it more frequently. He's creating just a, a phenomenal mood and even a different mood than than what he created in, in Beetlejuice. But it, it's definitely in full swing here. And um, like I said, I, I think it's really amazing the way he he handles. You said it was very layered, Brie. And I think with all those layers, you can kind of lose control and let things get out of out of hand. But he he just he continues to pull all those layers together in such a it's so it's it's layered in such a such a brilliant, delicate, gentle way that I don't know if when you really listen to it over and over again, you, you kind of hear his his brilliance for bringing everything together without it sounding cluttered, without it sounding um, clumsy, which sometimes if you listen to a you know a lesser score, not necessarily his, but I mean you know someone else of perhaps less notable name scores can sometimes get clumsy when you try to do too much with them. And, and, you know, this, this was proof that like positive, I mean, this was a time when everybody had heard Batman by this point and, you know, and kind of, he's, he was becoming more of a household name and you knew he could do bombast. You knew he could do that type of score, but now the mainstream kind of got to know that Danny could also do this complete, you know, 180, this complete gentle, truly lovely, romantic but yet still dark and a little bit twisted because i mean it is a fairy tale right but it's certainly a fairy tale unlike you've ever seen or heard before yeah and you know the tagline for the movie is the story of an uncommonly gentle man so and that sums up who edward is and going back to what you said about having layers and that it can get out of hand i think because the movie itself is so character driven there's really no way for him to lose control with this because a lot of it is a lot of the music is just through Edward's perspective, I guess. It's like he's scoring for Edward and all of his emotions are conveyed through the score itself. So I think he nails it here. And personally, it's one of my all time favorite scores and he should have won a freaking Oscar for this. So absolutely. It's it's funny you say that, too, because I never really thought about it from that perspective. But, you know, it's funny because, I mean, truly, Johnny Depp doesn't really have a lot of lines in this film. I mean, yeah. and when he when he does, they're very quiet, um, so, you know, very soft spoken. So that's that's absolutely, a, I think, a brilliant observation that perhaps a lot of his speaking or a lot of insight into what he's actually thinking and or would have been saying is actually coming from Danny's score instead of from from dialogue. Yeah, and I'm just going to go off on a little tangent for a second about that even though this is about main titles, but there is a a moment in the movie where Edward sees a picture of Winona Ryder for the first time and then 
all you hear is the the main theme in a chorus as he's gazing at her portrait and you really feel that um his feelings of love kind of manifest through that theme definitely uh, an effective piece i think yeah still still certainly my top 10 of all time scores period and and easily if i hadn't already picked out a top 5 <laughs> for later on this this one is this one floats in and out frequently for me and sometimes it it would land at number 1 depending on the the mood i'm feeling all right here is introduction titles from edward scissorhands Next one, we have a bit of a quirky kind of offbeat feeling with the main theme to Men in Black. And I think it's interesting that we're covering this one right after Edward Scissorhands, because I think back to back, this really gives you a sense of Elfman's versatility, but also just the range of the of the sound that he can create that we still think of as typically Danny Elfman. Because I think Edward Scissorhands is absolutely typically it's the ultimate Danny Elfman score, but then you've got Men in Black, which is still just so fundamentally inherently Elfman, but they're completely different in terms of, you know, what their intentions are. So with Men in Black, that main title, it it perfectly sets up sort of the various elements inherent in this film itself. So you've got some electronic stuff, which suggests the science fiction elements of the story. You've got some funky touches that sort of foreshadow the movie's humor. And the actual main theme itself sort of chugs forward kind of stridently. And you could sort of see that that represents, if you will, the the dogged pursuit of the alien menace by the heroic men in black. Yeah, I kind of get the sense. And I'll I'll talk about this theme later on. But I kind of get the sense that this is Elfman kind of tipping his hat to his Oingo Boingo years. Songs like Nasty Habits or Insects kind of have that 1-5 tempo, like you said. And with that, the bass instruments get a chance to shine here. And that really makes it unique and, like you say, funky. Well, you can take the Elfman out of the Boingo, but you can't take the Boingo out of the Elfman, right? <laughs> I mean, I think I think that's just part of who he is and how he writes. And I mean, he, you know, for those who don't know, he literally wrote everything for the band. So, I mean, there's nothing that he he's going to write on the score side, that isn't going to harken back in some way to Oingo Boingo. But I agree that, you know, when he brings in, particularly when he brings in kind of those 
um, there's some synth bass going on here and there's some other obviously synth instruments, which I think he balances really well with orchestra when he's, when he's composing. Um, I know he knows exactly, even before he hands stuff over to, to, to Bartek, I know he knows exactly what he wants to be electronic and what he wants to be, you know, orchestra. Uh, so it's cool that he writes scores in that way because you do get a little more of that experimentation that you hear with, you know, men in black. And that you also heard with planet of the apes. And, um, you know, another thing I, I like about the score is you really get a, just in the, in the main title, you really get a, just a sense of like sort of the lighthearted nature that this film is going to possess. Like there's some like darkness to it. And and I think like Brett was alluding to like that definitive Danny Elfman sort of sound, but you, you know, you mentioned that this, this sort of gives a, a real sense of, of Danny's versatility. And I think, you know, th- I mean, thanks to his Tim, his collaborations with Tim, yeah, we all know he can do dark and brooding and, and even sinister for that matter. But I think this score kind of proves he can do family friendly as well, if that makes sense. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, which, which obviously is probably a good thing for his pocketbook, you know, that, <laughs> that he can, he, this is where, you know, this is the kind of time I think where Danny Elfman blew up from sort of this cultish underground, just, you know, this guy who collaborates mostly with Tim Burton to this guy who was really sought by all of Hollywood. And it, this is where he he got himself on the level with with all those other composers that we were, you know, talking about early Williams and Horner and, and you know, even Alan Silvestri and, you know, those to- types of guys. I feel like it, it scores like this one that brought Danny into, you know, the mainstream where where he is. People know him now, you know, it's not just, oh, that's a nice score, but, oh, was that a, you know, was that a Danny Elfman score? And then, you know, kind of speaking of his, his, like we were talking about how he would, you know, nod to other composers. One of the things that I hear when I listen to this particular title sequence, and then obviously throughout the rest of the film is, is an, is a nod to like fifties and sixties spy films. Sure. Um, Yeah. yeah, He just, he, he, he's always kind of, like I said, he, he borrows without, I guess without plagiarizing, but you hear those, you hear those influences. And I think he, he really blends them into scores like this one in a cool way where, you know, you hear that, that 50, 60s kind of spy film. And that's a, that's the right tone. I think for the men in black, it it just works really well for them. All right. Here is MIB main theme.
next one we've got is the complete opposite, and that is the main theme to Black Beauty. Now, this one comes off the heels of his, I guess, first quote-unquote sad score, uh, which was for Summersby. And what he said regarding this score was, quote, if there's one thing I really love, it's sad music. And I think he really captures that here. Uh, There's a wonderful main violin theme that adds a sense of melancholy to it while, while still keeping with the sweet, innocent nature of the story without becoming overly sappy. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, he said himself that this was sort of like a score where it was like sort of happy and sad to the extreme because you kind of have both you kind of have both extremes in the score and you you hear a little bit of of that in in the titles as well. I mean, after all it is about a horse and I know the story is quite sad, but there you know there are times where the the score itself sort of shows, you know, that that sort of playfulness uh, of a horse, you know, young horse and you hear it and there's kind of a cool, like it's, it's kind of an interesting way in, in which, which he goes back and forth between the happy and sad. And while I admit this is a film that I've never seen, it it was one of the very first scores that I actually ever bought. And to this day, it's, it's still one of my favorites because of, of the, the Celtic vibe that he yeah. um sort of sews into it. And he's doing this thing with that main theme where he's like sort of switching back and forth between minor or Aeolian mode and Dorian mode. And for the non-music nerds like me, Dorian mode is very much like when you hear something that sounds distinctly Celtic or Irish, you're most likely hearing a Dorian mode scale. And that's what he's playing with. Um, Because it's minor, it can be really sad at points. But then he'll switch into that Dorian mode, which like gives it just enough lift, hmm. like so you don't get like sunk down into it. And and how that's how he like transitions kind of back and forth between that extremely happy and extremely sad, because it is sad, but it, it's it's also sweet and innocent at times. And that's I don't know. That's just again kind of the brilliance of him him juggling themes and and different keys and whatnot. And and I think till the end of time, this will be one of my favorite scores, if not on this list, one of my favorite main titles. Here are the main titles from Black Beauty. Thank you. 
next come the titles for one of my favorite childhood movies, Dick Tracy. Does that mean it's still not a favorite? Uh, Sure, but I'm probably not as into it as I was back then. (laughs) This is a great movie, and I don't care what anyone else says. Hey, I've got it on Blu-ray. Okay, good. So there, take it away. All right, I'll, I'll take it away here. So with the main titles to Dick Tracy, you've got something that is big and and over the top in a way that complements the very, very bold visual design of the movie itself. The primary theme is kind of in your face, and it serves to complement the very square-jawed title hero, while the love theme that we eventually hear has kind of this jazzy, bluesy, inflected feel that uh, is very old-fashioned, wonderfully old-fashioned, and it evokes the 1930s, 1940s-inspired setting of the movie that we're about to see. Yeah, I love how hard-boiled it sounds, like yes. the, the opening to it. And then you get this, this sweeping Gershwin-esque old Hollywood theme that's just, ah, it's it's amazing. I'm, I'm glad you said that, Brie, because uh, Danny himself has admitted that he's totally ripping off George Gershwin <laughs> for this. And it does. It does. It totally it totally has that that George Gershwin esque that, you know, the, the breathless theme. It's schmaltzy and romantic, but it's just the right kind of schmaltzy and romantic for a com, you know, a movie based on a comic strip. And it doesn't go overboard. He really I mean, Gershwin is not someone who's easy to imitate. And it's and his composing style is actually quite mature. So for Danny to to do that and do it well, I mean, it's amazing on the one hand, but it, it's it's incredibly beautiful and 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 like uh, Brett was saying, it's it's very reminiscent of that 30s time period that the the film and the characters are set in, and it works perfectly. And it is an it is in perfect contrast to that opening theme, which. Like if we really think about it, right? This was his first his first comic hero film post Batman. Like Batman was his first superhero film, and then and then this was his second. And if you listen to it, there are certain nuances, right? That that where you're like, okay, yeah, this is clearly the guy who wrote the score to Batman. Not the least of which, when Bree, when you play this to all of our listeners, like listen for those first few opening notes. It's once again, it's Danny's signature French horn mm-hmm. o- opening the opening the very beginning of, of the piece. And it it has, like you said, the, whoever said the square jawed comment was it's perfect. That that's exactly, you know, he 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 nailed it there. And then he does. He makes that beautiful transition back over to that that Gershwin-esque 1930s jazz. And even without the film, this is a score that is super listenable all the way through, but particularly he does a fabulous job of, of sort of summarizing it in those main titles. All right, here are the main titles from Dick Tracy.
All right, jumping to the other end of the spectrum, we have Again. Mars Attacks. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because we, we were talking about Elfman tipping his cap and acknowledging sort of, you know, past influences of, you know, composers. And you definitely see that with Mars Attacks because here he completely embraces the idea that this score is going to be basically a parody slash pastiche of 1950s alien invasion movies. And you hear that most directly because of the prominent usage of the theremin, which was a, a, a staple of sci-fi scores in the 50s. Um, two notable examples, you have Dimitri Tiomkin's The Think for Another World and Bernard Herrmann's The Day the Earth Stood Still. Um, Elfman's main title for Mars Attacks also has kind of some March-like elements that I think if you're inclined to look at it this way, could imply sort of the inevitable onslaught that this alien invasion is about to bring to the Earth. Yeah, it really doesn't shy away from that, does it? No. <laughs> you know, with this film, it's it schmaltz all the way. Uh, you know, Tim doesn't make any, he, he doesn't pull any punches, and Danny doesn't pull any punches with the score either. And I mean, literally, I just don't think I could, like, Brett, you, you pretty much nailed this. You, like, you did the the entire score in a nutshell right there. And I don't think I could <laughs> add a thing. It's incredibly over the top, but the movie is incredibly over the top. So it works very, very well, I think. Yeah. Again, an another one of those, uh, you know, situations where Tim and Danny, it's like they get in each other's heads and they know, or, you know, or Danny knows exactly. They must sit down and just have like, I don't know, a beer or a cup of tea or whiskey and just discuss because they, they seem to always line up so perfectly. I feel like, you know, they're in each other's heads. And this, this film yeah. is really no exception to that. Here's the main title to Mars Attacks. to follow Mars Attacks than Summersby. <laughs> score likely regarded as Elfman's first dramatic score. I mean, outside his trademark style, of course. But here you get another example of 
brass and solo trumpets and woodwinds that are really nicely highlighted in this kind of, I guess, ebb and flow that we hear in the main theme. And then we also get a little bit of instrumentation of the time period. Uh, I guess, Brett, you'll probably highlight this later. I will. But it's it's a somber <laughs> theme. And unlike Black Beauty, it's it's telling us that the story ahead is not going to be necessarily an easy one. I'll reserve further comments uh, for a later time. Okay. Well, then I'll, I'll jump in here and say that this is a, you know, it is a truly sad, but also truly gorgeous uh, and and extremely melodic score. The melody in that main theme is just like, it just sucks me in. And I'm just like, I'm on board. It's like, it's like, like you've just thrown me on a boat on a river and I'm just, I'm there for the ride. And, and that's his melody just kind of pulls you with. And might I add more French horn. I can't get enough of Danny's French horn. And this is like, this score is just full of it, full of the, the brass, the tone and color is so beautiful. And like you said, Brie, it, it was unlike anything he had done up to this point, making it in many ways, really very unique. I think still to this day, it's, it's kind of unique in his, in his film filmography. When I listen to it, I, I don't always hear, like, I don't always hear it as a Danny Elfman score. I just hear it as this lush score, like that I just can put on and listen to probably not when I'm super happy because it would bring me down a bit, but and one other color that I kind of like that you didn't hear a lot uh, until after the this score and after was um, I think you mentioned um, some instruments at the time, but but you hear in the main title and then later on in the score um, some plucked string instruments, which are not sure. real real common in or you know orchestral music, but they speak very well to the to the subject matter of the film or the or the setting of the film, and he does end up using more plucked string instruments in, in other scores in the future. But I, I you know, I, I can't be for sure for certain on this, but I think this was one of the very first times that he used instruments like that. And it, and he, it was, it was perfect. It was, it was perfect for this score. Here is the main title to Summersby or Regency films. If you want to go that way. <laughs> Do they still use that? I wonder, uh, is Regency even around well, that's anymore? A, that's another good question. <laughs> All right. 
so that was our deep dive into some of the main themes of Danny Elfman. Now we are going to get into our top five Danny Elfman main title pieces. Chad, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, so I had to be kind of the subversive nerd and pick maybe some of his less, some of his less popular scores, but Flubber. Yeah, that's good. No, it's a good <laughs> score, but it's not in my top five. Um, I do actually love that score, to, despite it being a Disney score and being kind of, you know, more on the on the light side. And I because uh, I fully admit I like a lot of his dark stuff. And that said, I'm going to start off with uh, his score for Darkman mm. uh, is is one of my all time favorites. Um, early on, when Danny would work with Sam Raimi, uh, the results were always good. And and Darkman is that first uh, his first collaboration with him. And it's. It's it's just killer. Uh, the the theme is it's it's extremely well dark and uh, and you hear um, you hear uh, some of the same elements like you were talking about how he has that definitive style. This is one of the scores where I feel like he he solidified that and he he you know developed he was in the process of developing and solidifying that that definitive sound because it is one of his earliest scores. I think it's right around the time of Batman. And then speaking of Batman, next I have on the on the list is is actually Batman Returns. And interestingly enough, there's a there's a story where I heard from Danny where he said Batman is one of his favorite scores, but he said revisiting it was was so much fun and that he actually feels that Batman Returns is a better score. And when I first heard him say that, I was like you know, poppycock, that's nonsense. Like the Batman score is easily, you know, one of his most iconic. There's no way he topped it with the second one. But over years of listening to these scores, I've had these in my collection for since high school. So like 30 years. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe like over years, it, like it, after a while, I just like was like, wait a minute. I think he he was right. Because in particular, he has this he not only is balancing he not only has that that main batman theme but he he's also balancing the penguin's theme as well as catwoman's theme and one really fun thing about the penguin's theme is it's based on this old piece of music uh an old gregorian chant called the dac ray and i don't want to spend any time talking about that so if you're interested in 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 finding out more and how it's been used over and over by literally every composer in the history of the world go wikipedia dac ray and read the Wikipedia article on it. 
The day I figured out that he that's what he had based that theme on, I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Like, that's awesome. And uh, and that said, so that transitions to my next favorite score and, and, and main title. And this one is certainly everyone knows this one, I think, to a degree. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. And I'm spoiled by this score because, of course, Danny is the voice, the, the singing voice of Jack Skellington. So uh, I love hearing you know, Danny sing anything, whether it be Oingo Boingo or or this. But interestingly enough, the entire score of Nightmare Before Christmas is is in some way based around that same piece of Gregorian chant, that DAC ray. And probably the, the easiest way for you to hear it, for those who are, are fans of and, and have listened to it, uh, is the, the the main theme of making Christmas hmm. that those those four notes are the DAC ray. And he uses that over and over again, and he inverts it in Sally's theme, and he uses it in in the one part where he's singing, what have I done? Same four notes. And so it's this brilliant reference to this Gregorian chant that, and yet again, this fabulous nod to the past, because so many composers, and again, go to that Wikipedia article, you can see literally everything from every classical composer, you know, under the sun up to, you know, modern like death metal bands have quoted this, these four notes in their music. So it's not just a kid's film. It's this really brilliant piece of, of music. And it, and it's um, again, it's one of those scores where I sometimes prefer to just pop the CD in as opposed to watching the whole film, because I can get the whole story just from the music.
And then next is sort of an odd score called To Die For. But the reason I love it is because he, for the first time, brings in electric guitars uh, to his score. And that just blows me away, uh, the way he kind of brought his his rock band world together with his scoring world. And uh, it's just a fun, dark, sinister, all-around crazy score. So if you've never heard it, definitely go out and check it out. on my list would be his score for red dragon which is uh is a it's from the hannibal lecter that's a hannibal lecter film or Mm -hmm. uh from that world it is really just an amazing score i don't have a unfortunately a lot of notes on that one uh i didn't have time to particularly like pick it apart but what i love about it is is once again it's this really dark and sinister score but the main character who isn't actually hannibal it's this other serial killer is sort of the sad pathetic child and danny plays with that in the score he he has this um back and forth between this like really sinister music and this oh underneath this sad sinister red dragon is this sad pathetic child who nobody loves and that's why he's a that's why he's the serial killer. And it's a really brilliant psychological play of that Danny creates for this film in the music. And, and that's why it's on my top five and why I love it so much. Yeah, he also said that that particular score was a tip of the hat to Bernard Herrmann. I believe it. He loves Bernard. <laughs> After all, he did do the uh, also handled the um, the remake of Psycho, yeah. where Ugh. he. <laughs> he he himself just retreated. He didn't rescore it. He simply took Bernard Herrmann's music and retreated it for the modern film, which is not something I've ever heard of before, but had to be just a, you know, like anyone who has a hero, uh, you know, in that way, and then has the opportunity to sort of handle their music or, you know, or their filmmaking. I mean, it's just, uh, it had to be a massive treat for him to do that. And he did on that score, he did write, there's like a 40 second, I think, little piece right at the beginning 
um, because cool. obviously yeah. the uh, the original Psycho doesn't have you know really elongated studio logos. So for the remake, obviously it's Universal. So they wanted to, and I think Imagine Entertainment. And so they had like lengthy title cards. And I guess he decided I'm going to write something just at the beginning here. And then the whole rest of the score is the Bernard Herrmann score. But there's like 40 or 50 seconds of basically just Elfman sort of riffing on Psycho um, kind of in a, in a atmospheric sort of way. That's actually kind of cool. Um, really? And it might, it might be the very best thing to come out of that entire film. In fact, I'm sure it is. Cause that film is <laughs> terrible. Oh, and, and I never saw it, but I do own the score and I love it. And I listen to it all the time. That's just like taking, you know, we marrying Bernard Herman and Danny Elfman together. That's, you know, for us music score junkies, that's like, that's the dream. All right, Brett, tell us what you got. Okay, so for for main titles, I'm starting with an honorable mention, and and it's the the main title for the Tales from the Crypt TV show, which it's it's the kind of thing where if you were to look up in the dictionary, like Danny Elfman in macabre mode, <laughs> this is sort of like what would maybe be in there waiting for you. It's almost to the point where it's it's like cliched at this point because he's sort of done this you know, often since, um, but I don't think he ever really topped it. And it's interesting as I was listening to it a couple days ago, getting ready for this, it immediately jumped into my mind that this is basically just him sort of doing a souped up version of his Scrooged main title. Cause they're very similar. You've sort of got a, a rhythmic element that is right out of Scrooged and the actual theme itself is only one or two notes really removed from what he did for Scrooged. And, and that's not, uh, a criticism at all um because i actually quite like the scrooged score but Great. so tales from the crypt is just a really fun little piece and it, it totally fits the tone of what that show was all about So moving into my list proper, this has already been discussed at length here, so I won't dwell on it anymore. But um, Edward Scissorhands, the the main titles to that film are, are Danny Elfman at his most Danny Elfman for me. Um, it's probably my favorite of his scores overall. And uh, I just think the sort of dark, whimsy kind of flavor that he creates there is um, is pretty iconic. Absolutely. Moving on. 
Beetlejuice. And, and we've talked about this one as well, uh, but just to add a little bit, it, it's kind of a, a perfect blend of the creepy and the humorous in the sense that it definitely has sort of a, a macabre flavor to it. But his decision to incorporate this kind of Eastern European dance flavor is such an out of left field choice that I've always found it funny. And, and putting those two things together, the, the macabre and the funny is exactly what the movie itself does. So it's, it's a perfect sort of introductory piece to prepare you for the movie you're, you're about to see. Um, my next pick would be the main titles from Summers B. And it's interesting, you know, we talked about how this is pretty much a, a unique score in the Elfman canon. And to me, I think a lot of that's because he's never really been given the opportunity to score a lot of straight historical period pieces. You know, if he is scoring a period piece, it's usually quirky or it's or it's it's genre-y in some way. Um, but Summersby is a very straight drama. And in this score, and particularly in these main titles, he's exploring an Americana flavor that's also something that he never really got much of a chance to work with elsewhere. It's got this folksy element with acoustic guitar, and then he brings in these very subtle snare drums and also solo trumpet, which definitely hint at the, the period setting, this being a post-Civil War era. And uh, I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. My next pick is the Batman theme. The main title is from Batman. And, you know, it's a pretty straightforward concert suite style presentation of the theme. And and I think it's probably his most identifiable theme. It, to me, it's incredibly iconic. It starts with a bit of mystery and then builds into this powerful march that immediately tells the audience tonally, and I'm sure this was intentional, that this is not going to be anything like the Adam West 60s TV mm -hmm. show. This is a film that's taking Batman seriously. And you definitely get that from these main titles. This is a, a serious interpretation of the character. So my final pick for favorite main titles uh, is the main title from Sleepy Hollow, which is pretty prototypical Elfman, like he's not breaking any new ground. There's not a whole lot of experimentation going on here. 
but it's his expected sound elevated to a grandiose, almost operatic level by the time you get to the end of this cue. It's very sinister, but there's also sort of a lyrical, sweeping, quasi-romantic feel to it that sort of cuts that edge a little bit. And one of the, the touches here that I love, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but and you only really get this if you're actually watching the movie, but the biggest crescendo of the cue, like the climax of the cue musically happens when Danny Elfman's credit appears on the screen. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's all I think of when I hear that part in the music. Like Music by Danny Elfman. I think, I think it was intense. I got to go back and watch that movie too. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, by the t- when he's scoring the film, I don't know if he's if he's getting the main titles with all the titles in there. So maybe he didn't know that it was going to be his name that came up at that point. But I like to think that he did and just said, hey, I'm going to cut loose here and, and, you know, treat myself a little well, I'll bit. Make a, I'll make a pact with both of you now. If any one of the three of us ever gets to interview Danny Elfman, that <laughs> question has to be in there. Did you know? And was it intentional? Done. Yeah. Because I, 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 I need to know this. Right on. <laughs> Well, that I would make the argument, too, that that's another score where um, I believe personally that the score is more memorable than the movie itself. Yeah, somewhat. I like them. I like the movie, but I listen to the score more often than I watch the movie. To right. me, to me, it's a this is getting off in the weeds here, but it's like they they futz around too much with like what the story of the legend of Sleepy Hollow is. And they, they turn it into something that obviously the short story is not. Right. Um, but I love the style of the movie. Like it just yeah. looks absolutely fantastic. And it, it's sort of a perfect Halloween season watch. But I definitely listen to the score far more than I actually sit down and watch the movie. Yeah. And, and again, like with the uh, the killer score from Dracula. No, no hate on the film. Yeah, I just, I just think the score is that good. Oh, it's really good. I'll hate on the film. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't do this to me. <laughs> no, uh, going back to Sleepy Hollow. What I, what I like about the intro to this particular cue is that background organ mm-hmm. that kind of shows up right in the beginning. Yeah, it, uh, it gives it How a nice Halloween feel.
jump into mine. Um, I also have an honorable mention, and that is the Hellboy 2 titles. These are really quick, but I, I like them because it's almost uh, reminiscent of the mechanical flavors that were in um, Planet of the Apes and to some extent Mars Attacks. So here is Hellboy 2 titles. My next favorite is the Men in Black theme, and probably because it's, I think, his most Oingo Boingo-esque sounding theme. And what I love about it is that it's written for this truly memorable main title sequence where you're just following a freaking insect before it gets squished on a windshield. And there's kind of an absurd yet mysterious feeling to it all. All right, my next one is the main titles to Planet of the Apes. And I think what really gets me here is that bass drop in the beginning. I just mm. It sounds so cool. And I love it because I don't think we've really heard uh, percussion shine as much in other Elfman scores as this. And also just because of its sinister and threatening nature. If I remember anything from this movie, it's probably the main titles because I think these were uh, the music was playing over like shots of dramatically lit ape armor and other things like that. So it really uh, complements what was on screen. Uh, my next favorite uh, is the main title sequence to Black Beauty. We've touched on this, but it's probably one of my all-time favorite quote-unquote beautiful themes, probably because he highlights the solo violin throughout, and it really gives a musical personality to the titular character. All right, my next favorite is the introduction titles to Edward Scissorhands. And um, just a side note, uh, I was lucky enough as a child that my mom introduced me to Oingo Boingo and Edward Scissorhands. So shout out to mom who has great taste. <laughs> so uh, I love this theme because I don't think Elfman has ever come as close to replicating the type of emotional release and layers of it. But what always struck me about this theme is that it goes from this very sad uh, waltz um, into an almost gentle lullaby towards the end. All right, and my last, my top favorite is the main titles to Beetlejuice. It always makes me smile whenever I listen to it. There are just times when the music itself conjures up a personal nostalgia, uh, for me at least. And uh, for me, it's... That's what this theme is. It embodies everything that I love about Danny Elfman's early style, uh, Tim Burton, and Oingo Boingo just all rolled into one. It's everything dark, twisted, and offbeat about the 80s. That's what I get out of it. Yeah, very quintessential. 
All right. Guys, I'm really disappointed that none of you chose to highlight Fifty Shades of Grey on your list, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't even own that. Yeah, huge <laughs> oversight on my part. <laughs> and then amongst some of his more recent stuff, I would say, I, I, bet, I bet I could pick some others that are more memorable, I'm sure. True. That That's an interesting final question we could leave this on. Not that I want to take over this show and decide we're, how we're ending things oh, here. But do. like <laughs> the the best, most recent Elfman scores. Frank and Weenie. Uh, I, would, I would go, well, how I'm going to go back? the Wolfman. How far back? That's a good one too. Well, let, let's say the last 10 years. Mm, okay. So that I can get the Wolfman in just under the wire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alice in Wonderland. That, that's also a very good one. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I'd say Alice in Wonderland. Definitely the Wolfman. Well, I know I, I know I sounded like I was kind of joking, but I'm kind of not. It's if the Frank and Weenie score, even though it's a very, you know, it's it's not I don't even know if that's a a full two hour film, but it's actually a, a really charming score for, you know, it, again, being it's a kid's film and it's a it's, you know, it's another Tim Danny. I mean, that's one of Tim's, you know, oldest stories based on, a, you know, like a basically a college film of his. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I didn't I don't know, maybe it's because I didn't have the highest hopes for it necessarily just because it was a, because of that fact. But I remember walking out of the theater going, that's the best thing I've heard from Danny in years. Like I really liked it. It was really charming. Underrated movie too. It is. It really is. Short films underrated too. It's the short film is superior. I agree. All right, guys. Well, thank you for chatting. Absolutely. Anytime. uh, And anytime Danny Elfman is on the table, I'm, I'm there. (laughs) Yeah, Danny, tell us about your uh, Sleepy Hollow cue. We want to know. Yeah, we got it. We need to get him on the show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll give him a call. Yeah, I'm sure he'd step right up for that. I'm sure. He's got nothing better to do, right? Well, have a fabulous day. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank Bye. you again for having me. Bye.